0: All right, Um, one of the things that I wanted to do uh, first and foremost is I apologize for being hard-headed. It has taken me eight weeks to actually figure out how to study for this class, and that's a pain. So uh, I apologize to you guys. I've been learning. I've been learning Genesis just like you have. I'm loving it. But, you know, I I just thank you all for putting up with me (laughs) because I think um, when I first started, I was way up here because that's what, you know, I went, I went to DTS, and, you know, we got all this stuff, and I wanted to give you guys, like, everything that I got. But you guys don't need all of that stuff. You guys just want to kind of flow through the book, learn the book, learn what's in the book. And I was like, at once I figured that out eight weeks later, uh, <laughs> I was like, so it's kind of been uh, like a slow progression for my learning. So you can teach an old dog new tricks but sometimes you can't make him lay down. So uh, I apologize, and hopefully next time I teach, Lord willing, um, it will all be better from the, from the beginning. So I, I love you guys, and I wanted to say that. Also, about last week with the whole Jew thing, which we got into, I have to say the jury's still out. Um, <laughs> I got convinced last Sunday, but then I did some work, and I found out that wasn't so convincing the information that I got. So we'll, but we'll talk about that later. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. So, uh, Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for just the opportunity, Lord, to go through Genesis, learn about the life of Abraham today. Lord, we just thank you for um, giving us insight, giving us um, wisdom into your word. Lord, we look forward to gazing into your law intently, Lord, and just being uh, lavished with the light that comes from it, Lord. It gives us truth. It gives us guidance. It gives us examples. And it gives us, most basically and preciously, it gives us your son so we can know about him. Lord, we are looking forward to what you're going to teach us, and Lord, I uh, just ask that you would bless this class, bless the speaker, uh, as we move through Genesis, um, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Um, today, hopefully, we're going to cover Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 14. I can kind of cut this off anywhere, but I really would like to get to uh, 14, which is right before chapter 15, which is where you have the restatement of the covenant. So, um, but here's the thing: in, in the first, the first, the very first chapter, the very first paragraph, on your book says, what is a Patriarch? Does anybody have any idea? I'll give you a hint. It's on the paper. So what's a Patriarch? Same as the name a Patriarch, level <laughs> Yes. <laughs> a Patriarch is just that person that we look to that's the fountainhead of our faith, and that's what Abraham is. Um, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all look to Abraham. We all turn to Abraham and say, he is the father of our faith. Now, Abraham is a great guy. We got into the promise that God gave him last week, but now what we're going to see is that just like Adam and Eve did, Abraham starts to put that promise into a little bit of jeopardy, but God is faithful. The second paragraph on your handout says, This passage is the start of God's working out the promise in Abram's life. There are many trials and pitfalls and many questions about Abraham's life, his resolve, and God's faithfulness. But through the drama of the last 12 and a half chapters, the message is clear. God will establish his covenant and has a unique relationship with Abram and his family. God will be faithful. So let's start in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. So this is right after God has made a promise to Abraham. So now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Now, Sarah was how old? Maybe. Sixty-five. She was 65-ish around there. She was not young by today's standard, but she was still a beautiful woman. So it must have been something about that, that time period where they lived, maybe living in the desert. Maybe this will help me look better, you know, as I'm living down here in this dry desert land here in Texas. I'm used to a little more seasons, but, uh, you know, I'll look better when I'm 65. But Saul was a beautiful woman. And it says, uh, And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will uh, let you live. So he says this, Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now, if you, if you, if you have read through Genesis and been keeping up with the reading, in Genesis chapter 20, verse 13, Abraham tells us that this was their normal practice. Anytime they'd meet anybody anywhere, he would say to them, uh, remember, you need to tell them that you're my sister, not my wife. So this is is something that Abraham and, and Sarai had done on a regular and continuing basis. Verse 14, it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Uh, Pharaoh's officials saw her and they praised her. Now, uh, that word is halal, and what that means is uh, that there there must have been something, something about you know they said, text has already said that she was a beautiful woman, but there must have been something about Sarah, something about her countenance, something about the way she looked, something about the way she carried herself that made them not just want to take her for them. They said this woman is so special that we need to take her to Pharaoh. So, they're moving on and, and it says this. They took her to Pharaoh and women was taken to Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abraham well for her sake and gave him sheep, oxen, donkeys, male and female servants, and female donkeys and camels. Now, okay, guys, let's let's this is for the guys. How many of you would take sheep, oxen, camels, donkeys, male and females for your mate? Nobody's raising their hand. I wouldn't either. You know, but you got to understand. We got to understand where we're at in this time period. If if you're just telling people, hey, this is my sister, say, hey, look, I'll give you something for your sister. So they give Abraham. Now he already had a whole bunch of stuff, and they gave him. I can't make my arms any wider. A whole more bunch of stuff. So that's how Abraham has, is acquiring all of these things that he has. So. At what happens right here is a threat to God's promise, all right? Abraham can either tell the truth, be, be right, do the right thing, go back on this whole she's my sister" thing, or he cannot trust God, okay? God has said, I am going to bless you. Abraham does not think so. He doesn't believe the promise. Now, does that sound like anything else that we've done in Genesis? What's it sound like? Well, back in chapter, uh, chapter 3, did God really say? Okay. Now, remember, Genesis is a book that just keeps going like this. You keep going forward to go back to go forward again. And it's amazing. I, again, I had not studied Genesis this closely. You know, as, you, as you're a Christian sometimes, I know this was me, I would read the Old Testament, kind of like <laughs> read it, and I got to the New Testament, I'm like, okay, now I'm in the good stuff. I can slow down and read. I just kind of read the Old Testament to, to, like, get my duty done. But as I'm going through Genesis a little bit slower, I'm, like, constantly amazed that it's constantly circling back going forward, constantly circling back going forward. And God is telling a story. Moses is telling a story. And this story has a point. But here's what happened. But the Lord, verse 17, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Then, now I want you to notice that then, there's going to be a whole bunch of something, 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 then. Something, 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 now. Something, 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 and again. That happens all throughout the book of Genesis. Something happens, and then God shows up. Okay. So the, the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house the great plagues because of Sarai. Then Pharaoh called Abraham and said, This is what you have done to me. Now there was no uh, indication here of any divine revelation or anything, but somehow Pharaoh must have known that, that, uh, Abra- that Sarai was Abraham's wife. This is what you have done to me. Why did, you not, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, Hey, she's my sister. So then I took her for my wife, then again, now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away, with his wife and all that belonged to him. So they came into this, to this, this thing, Abraham and Sarah talked, said, hey, say you're my sister. Got, it got all the way up to Pharaoh, she got all the way up to Pharaoh, and something happened, we don't know what, but these plagues come in the land of Egypt. Now. If I can remember reading ahead, aren't there plagues in Egypt with a guy named Moses? Yeah, okay. There's a plagues in Egypt with a guy named Moses, but there's something happens, and he says, y'all got to go. She's not your sister. She's your wife. So he got the truth, and he said, look, I got to let you go, Abraham. So one cannot miss the deliberate, there are deliberate parallels, I think, uh, in this book. The motifs are remarkably similar. There's a famine, Um, there is a descent to Egypt, there's an attempt to kill all the males, uh, but save the females, there's plagues, there's the spoiling or the ransacking, taking all the goods out of Egypt, there's deliverance, Uh, there's an ascent up to Negev. Um, And this great deliverance out of bondage is uh, what Israel experienced and has already accomplished It it, it was already accomplished in her ancestor, and probably as Moses is writing to these people, it's a source of comfort. Hey, he went through this. We're going through this. We will get through this. God is with us. Because, again, if you've got to remember, Moses is writing after these events, and he's writing to encourage the people. So as Moses is doing that, there's going to be this kind of this is what truly happened but it's happening to us, we can get through it. We can do it. It's kind of like marshaling the truth. Hey, we can do this, y'all. Did, everybody, did anybody see, um, Was that uh, Mel Gibson movie where, you know, freedom! Braveheart. Braveheart, you know, kind of that thing. We can do this. We can get it all done. That's kind of what's going on here. So as you turn to Chapter 13, moving on through, it says this. Chapter 13, or actually, excuse me. Um, This is what happens to Abraham. As he has entered the mighty land of Egypt, he has become aware of an unseen danger. The Egyptians are like the Canaanites, okay? They're ungodly. They're not good people. They're going to have sexual immorality, bestiality. They're going to practice animal sacrifices and all this stuff. Um, Polygamy and sexual promiscuity were common. As they entered into Egypt, Abram probably noted the admiring glances being directed by the inhabitants towards his beautiful wife. And he realized that it was not at all beyond them to kill him and his servants in order for Sarah to be with them. But this is what Moses has done. Moses would have his readers to learn of God's gracious protection of his plans through divine intervention and deliverance. He would also have uh, them learn of the folly of trying to deliver themselves from difficulties by means of deceptive snares. Now, you can say that, I think, for all Christians. We have to learn. It's kind of like when Jesus uh, told the guys, uh, get in the boat, we're going to go to the other side, okay? They could have chosen not to believe Jesus and walked around or waited until the next day, but what happened? They get in the boat, and they're going to the other side, and a great storm picks up, and then they see Jesus walking on the water. He told them, we're going to the other side. Now, if Jesus told you that, would you believe him, or would you not? I'd believe him. I think. I think. But it all depends. Everybody, everybody, everybody. Everybody look up here. Look up here. Let's do this. Relax. Relax. Okay? It's a good day. It's Sunday. We're getting to praise of the Lord. We're getting to worship God. We're getting to study his Bible. It's a good day. Relax, everybody. Relax. Okay? Everybody's looking tense. Okay? Just let it out. Let your shoulders roll. It's okay. All right. So, chapter 13. This is where the promise is going to be kind of put in jeopardy, not by Pharaoh, but the promise is going to be put in jeopardy by Lot. Now, Lot was... Uh, Abr- Abram's what? Nephew. He nephew. was his nephew. And the way the laws and the, all of that worked back then, if I didn't have a child and I died, I could leave everything to my nephew. So God's going to have to do something about that. Verse, Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev. All right. Here we go. Abraham... Oh, that's the next one. Sorry. I know y'all can't see this, but y'all can kind of see sort of see this. Abraham is down here. And he's going to travel all the way up here and go through. This is the Negev, all right, right through here, the place where it's desolate, dry. It's that patch of land between these two continents. that is what, That's what everything is contested over, that little stretch of land. And you can't see this, but he's going that way. Okay? So that's what he's doing. Abraham is moving from Egypt up through the Negev back to Canaan. And it says, uh, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and then I love how the Bible throws this in, and lot with him. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Now, remember, he had a lot of stuff. He went to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh gave him more stuff. And he went on his journey from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. If you remember last week, we talked about how Abram had moved down from Haran and set up his tent between Bethel and Ai. Now he's going back to that spot between Bethel and Ai. Excuse me. To the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there, what did he do? Abraham called on the name of the Lord. He's in the middle of this pagan land, because remember, the text is going to tell us in a minute that the Canaanites were there. Again, he's in the middle of this pagan land, and he says, I'm going to worship the one true God. Then the Bible gives you a contrast. Now, it's told us about Abraham. Now, Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, and land could not sustain them while dwelling together for everything that they had, all their stuff was basically sucking the land dry. And also you've got to remember, the Canaanites were there and their tribes and the Perizzites, and, and some other people were there. And yes, and, um, and so this, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So you've got these people dwelling there. Abraham comes back, and I have no idea how many people it has, but we're going to talk about that in a, in a minute. But you've got Abraham's people, Lot's people, two groups of people, two main groups of people, all trying to live in this little patch of land with cattle and all of this stuff. So what's God going to do? Verse 8. So Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Again, that word. In the Hebrew, it could just mean we're like, we're family, basically. Is is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes. Now pay attention to that phrase. Lot lifted up his eyes, and what did he see? And he saw all the valley of the Jordan. And it was well watered everywhere. It was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, which is what? Egypt Egypt and Eden. Eden. Okay. It was like Eden. Like the land of Egypt, and as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward and there they separated from each other back to my first map that I pulled out mistakenly so here they are lot goes this way ends up here Abraham says I'm going to end up here so that's all they're doing they're saying we're going to separate all right so they separated these were people who said I got one way to go, you got one another way to go. But so let me ask a question. Was Lot thinking godly or was Lot thinking in his human flesh? In his human flesh. And we're going to find out.
1: This
0: so hard to say at that point. What do you mean? How Lot's thinking. If you're just reading the text... Right there at that point. Yes, it's hard, but looking back, because we, again, we're Christians, we know the whole story. The whole story in the New
1: Testament is called Righteous Lot,
0: though. Yeah.
1: So that's just why I'm saying it's hard to say at this point what his intentions
0: are. Yes, his intentions are not clear, but to understand that he's called Righteous Lot. But you can be righteous. There are people who are called righteous in the Bible, but still do sin. You know, they still, they don't live perfect lives. Sure so um so that that was actually a very good point they took all the goods of sodom and gomorrah and all their food supply and departed they also took whoops sorry jumped ahead i was in chapter 14. um so they chose for himself so lot chose for himself all the valley of jordan and lot journeyed eastward they separated from each other abraham settled in the land of canaan now canaan is simply a name for the land of palestine it is uh it means uh, a land of purple. Now, purple in the Bible is a good thing because it means prosperous. While Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, what that's telling you is that Lot moved to Sherman, Sodom. If Dallas is Sodom, Lot moved to Sherman. But what we're going to see later is that Lot kind of picked up from Sherman and kind of moved to, like, South Garland. And then later, Lot moves from South Garland to like he's sitting right next to the Capitol. Okay, he moves, he transitions. The Bible shows this transition that Lot, Lot is not all right in his head. I agree, he's righteous. But yes, go ahead.
1: Well, what I was going to say is with that first point, though, is it says that the first point he shows the whole, all Jordan Valley. Yes. So he may have had decent intentions on the front end. But then as he went into the Jordan Valley further and saw that all the fleshly stuff was there for him, that could have been what's tugging him away.
0: Could have turned his heart a little bit? Yeah, it might, might be. And I agree that the text does not specifically say, but I think um, as I'm reading, reading, and reading, and reading, and reading, I think the commentaries are generally in agreement. And, and, and trust me, you're free to have a different opinion and commentary. But I think that they're like, it wasn't that, I'm not I, I hope you don't hear me saying that Lot was unrighteous at this point. If you all hear me saying that, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that he's a bad guy. I'm just saying that as we look back as Christians, we can say that his intentions probably were not right from the beginning. Basically, because Lot, and I think I'll show you that. If you can, if you can hold on, I think I'll answer that in just a second. Um, <clears throat> Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the city of the valleys. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Now verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham or Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes. So first, Abraham had told Lot to lift up your eyes. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw, I think, with his, his, his flesh, his body, he said, okay, I got that way or that way? I like that way because it looks good. But Now the Lord tells Abram, look up, and look to the place where you are going, northward, southward, eastward, westward. He said, look all the way around. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt in the Oaks of Mamre, again, a a terrible place. That's just a place where they're worshiping false gods, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So I think that kind of, I think scholars would look, and I kind of tend to agree, that they're saying God showed Abram this, but Lot, there's no direction from God in the text, Saw that, And they're not, again, I don't think it's saying that Lot is a terrible guy and we should just kick him out, you know, kick him out the story. But it is saying that Abram had an intention, and I, I think what the point of this is, is that there is a challenge to the promise. Lot is, but Lot has to be removed from the situation. So God physically puts distance between Lot and Abram. And so Lot's going that this way, and Abram's going that way. And that way, the line can continue unabated. That's all I think that's happening. I think that's the the main point. Yes, sir. Yeah, you
2: know, I was just going to say a couple. Of, to me, a couple of different ways to look at it is we understand that Lot is the nephew, mm-hmm. right? Abram is the uncle. Mm-hmm. So, from my perspective, Lot, whether he's righteous at this point or not, we may not know. But Abram, being the uncle, to me, he should have been the one deciding. Where Lot would go, rather than he left it up to Lot to decide. Right. Now, someone may say, "Well, that's not exercising. You know, he's not domineering over Lot, so therefore it's a good thing." But then on the other end, you could say, "Well, Abraham's not being decisive. He's allowing Lot to pick." Or, so to look at
0: it. or, or somebody could say that Abraham trusted God so much that it didn't matter what sure. Lot had picked. God was, you know, I personally, I lean on the fact that God kind of influenced lots of decisions, but the text doesn't say.
2: Right, that's what I see. I see it as a balance. You can say, well, he's not a domineering, you know, like telling everybody what to do. He's allowing them to pick. Right. But trusting in God's providence.
0: Right. There you go. So. There you go. There you go. There you
2: go. <laughs> yes. So, so it just comes down to God's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to the purpose that God has for both of us because of the end result. God's
0: will is going to come to pass. That. That's very good. I think this, the, the main point is, I think as you read the book of Genesis, the main point is, for the whole book, God is in control. Because everything that happens in the book of Genesis, you've got those four events up to chapter 11, and then you've got four main people from 12 to, 12 to 50. What you see is God knows what's going to happen, God determines what's going to happen, God decrees what's going to happen, and it happens. God is the one who says this, and that comes to pass. You see what I'm saying? It it is not a matter of, Moses did not write Genesis kind of like, let's see what God's going to do, y'all. Moses wrote Genesis, this is what God did. And it's going to help the the Israelites come out of Egypt. It is a story that God is is sovereign, and it's going to help his people move on. I think that is the point of Genesis. As as I as I read Genesis over and over again, I'm just seeing everywhere God did it. God did it. You know, God did it. And every and I'm just going every I'm kind of amazed everywhere I turn in the book, God does something. And he's just constantly flipping things over from the way that I think they should be, but that's that's he's got he's got that that, that prerogative. So, um which are Hebrew, and he built an altar to the lord. So, there, Moses is our, Abram. <laughs> Abram is worshiping. Abram is, is, is he, has, he has decided that he is now going to trust God. And that's going to be important for what we're going to see in chapter 14. Now, chapter 13 shows how faith can kind of solve problems. One might say that generosity is a sign of faith in God's promise, for faith does not selfishly seek its own desires but is generous, mag- magnanimous and self-denying. So let's move on to chapter 14. Now we have the war of the king. And it came about and then from that point it came about all the way through chapter 12. You got kings, nations, countries that're going to war. Okay? And you've got Four kings against five kings, and it does not look like the four kings will win. Down in verse 13, when the fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, uh, we had there was some issue. I think some people weren't clear when I said that that word, what the etymology of that word is, in the, in the history of that word. But I think here is the first time we see the word Hebrew ascribed to Abraham, and uh, Abram. And it's again, it's just, it's just a, I think it's just a word. It comes from Ever and, and it's, that's that's. Yeah, I think Josh, I think you, I think you guys looked it up on your phone or something. And you kind of confirmed. Carl,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: So uh, I, I didn't want to cause any scuttlebutt, any trouble, but. There was no <laughs> I'm glad that it all worked out. If you guys had looked it up and it said that Hebrew came from a whole different word, would have been problems, and I probably wouldn't probably wouldn't be here right now. So, <laughs> thank you guys for working with me. <laughs> uh, now he was living by the oath of memory. Again, that's a pagan place. The Amorite, brother of Eshol, the brother of Anner, and these were allies of Abram. Abram was in covenant with these people. It's just a man's covenant. He says, "Look, okay, we got to work together." um, I'm sorry, we're in 14, 14 verse 13. Moving on, we're in verse 14 now. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, now Lot gets captured. Lot's got a lot of stuff. Lot gets captured.
1: Um,
0: he He let out his trained men, born in the house, 318, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Again, in the first first part we read at the end of chapter 12, Abram says, "Ah, I don't really know if I trust you, God. I'm going to kind of finagle this a little bit and change some things up. God brings him out of it, but then we get to this section, and Abram has said, or God has said, Abram, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bless you. This this promise that I have given you is going to come true. So I think Abram, somewhere in here, has a change of heart. Abram has switched. He has said, you know what, God, if you go this way, I'm going to go this way. God, if you go that way, I'm going to go that way. Abram says, I am going to walk with God, and so Abram. Has, has walked with God, he has a lesser force, has defeated this greater force, and Abram goes back, gets his, his family member back, and not only gets his family member back, he gets all of his stuff back, and he brings it back. That, that just is amazing to me, that Abraham, Abram was able to do this, outman, outgun, but he chased him away and got Lot back. Then God says this, then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, I had to look that word up, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the Most High God. Now I had, I had a little something. That word there is El Elyon. Where did it go? Can somebody look on those papers and see if that's the very back? It should be one piece of paper. It should have black and purple letters. No. No? No, go. No,
3: go?
0: Somebody else got the note. Somebody else has
2: got it. No, no. Ah, there we go. No. Thank you, sir.
0: <laughs> El Elyon, great word, great title. Great name for God. The, up here is El, and remember, you're going to read Hebrew this way. El Elion. When you guys see that, when you see most high God, you can get happy. Now, it, it, it is unfortunate that uh, some of the prosperity teachers have taken that as like a title for themselves. I've actually heard a guy call himself El Elyon. That's, that's crazy to me. But, guys... It's, it's God, Most High, or Most High God. God is not huddled underneath the throne, okay? God, when, when, when Isaiah saw God, he, he wasn't cowered underneath the throne. Where was he? He was on top of the throne. And not only was he on top of the throne, everything was worshiping him. The angels were worshiping him. Everything. God is God, and we cannot compare to him. I, when, if you're studying the names of God, I, I just... El Elyon is one that kind of gets me happy. El Elyon is a great way to describe God. Um, he is God most high. He is, he is the king. He is, uh, he is it in common vernacular. So, And Melchizedek went out and brought bread and wine, and I was a priest of the most high God. And this is what Mel- Melchizedek said. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abraham, it doesn't say Abraham, it says he, which is Abraham, gave him a tenth. The king of Sodom said to Abram, now it's interesting, all of a sudden we're talking about Melchizedek and then just boom, the king of Sodom pops up. The king of Sodom said to Abraham. Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abraham said said back to this guy, uh, I have sworn to the Lord, that's Yahweh, God Most High, El Elyon, possessor or creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. Mm. Abraham said, the, the, the king comes and said. Uh, you know, Abram, I can do some, something for you. And he said, not going to have it. I promise the Lord I'm not taking a thing from you because it's not you that made me rich. It was who? El Elyon. It was Yahweh. It was the Lord Most High. And then he said this, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anner, Eshol, and Mamre, and uh, let them take their share. So that's the introduction to Abram. But if you turn to the epistle of Hebrews for me, chapter 7, it talks about this guy, Melchizedek, quite often. Chapter 7 of Hebrews. Now what happens is in Hebrews you get Melchizedek, mentioned nine times he's in chapter 5 verse 6 chapter 5 verse 10 and chapter 6 verse 20 and then he is all through chapter 7 just to give you all a little background on Melchizedek because you don't see him you don't see where he comes from in the old testament we're going to read through chapter 7 of hebrews and see where who is this guy chapter 7 of hebrews says this for this melchizedek king of salem priest of the most high god who met Abram as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, uh, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is the king of peace. And what is he like? He is without father without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the what? Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually or forever. Now, there's another, there's another time in the Old Testament where we see a vision as three uh, Hebrew boys, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, And that bad Negro, that's what my pastor used to say back home. He used to say say that bad Negro. Uh, a, A bendigo are thrown into the fire. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks in the fire, he says, I see one that looks like the son of God. So who is this guy? He remains a priest forever. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choice of spoils. And those are indeed the sons of Levi who received the priest's office, uh, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, Also, uh, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promise. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it was witnessed that he lives on. You could add on and on and on and on. And so, to speak, though Abraham, even uh, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise, according to the order of Melchizedek, and and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of the law also. For one concerning uh, whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. I like the old King James. It says, Our Lord sprang out of Judah, a tribe with reference to, uh, to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And it is clearer still if another priest arrives according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become uh, such not on the basis of law of a physical requirements, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's just quoting what David had said about him. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of the weakness and uselessness. of, um, For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Verse 23, the former priests, on the one hand, or excuse me, verse 21, Uh, For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more, also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the other hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from, uh, from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever... Holds his priesthood permanently. Does anybody see how it's kind of the, the the language has kind of shifted from Melchizedek to Jesus? I, I think that uh, I, the, the 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 issue in the in the for, for the, a lot of people is is Melchizedek a preincarnate version of Jesus? Who thinks yes? Nobody.
1: Not a preincarnate, but a foreshadowing.
0: Foreshadowing type, maybe. Who thinks Melchizedek is just a man that ain't got nothing to do with Jesus? Nobody? Okay, I'm out of options. Well, you understand he has something to do
1: with yeah, Jesus. There you
0: go. Exactly. I think he's a foreshadowing. He's, he is a type of Christ. We can look. I don't think. Um, the, now, the, what I read was that there is a lot of positive information for making Melchizedek to be Jesus. There's a lot of positive information. But I think um, there's enough negative information to, if you want to hold that, you've got to kind of hold it with your hand, hand open, kind of loosely. Um, but I kind of think that this might be, I thought you had a question, might be a pre-incarnate type of Christ. Okay? He has no beginning, no ending, but it doesn't tell us that in Genesis. It doesn't tell us where he came from. And some of the problems were if he's in Salem, he's in Jerusalem, which is the old name for Jerusalem, Salem. He's the king of Salem. At that time, that city was ruled by pagans. So how is Melchizedek going to be a priest of the Most High God while the city is ruled by pagans? And I was like, okay, that's a good point. But the Bible says he was. So he's there. He's in the Old Testament. He is mentioned as a, the, the priest par excellence in the New Testament kind of as a type of Christ because he just pops up, blesses Abraham. Now, Abraham was the patriarch. Abraham was the man. Abraham was the God. Jews looked to him. Muslims looked to him. Christians looked to him. But Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek.
2: Yes, sir. I was going to say in Genesis 14:23 would indicate to me that he was not
0: that he was yes, not.
2: That he was not the pre-incarnate Christ, and the reason why I say that is because you hear you have Abram, not recognising. Abram's only going to recognise receiving from God. Well, here you have Abram saying, "I'm not going to receive it from you unless you should say, Abram, I made Abram rich." Well, Abram wouldn't have a problem with the pre-incarnate. Christ making Abram rich, so I would say Abram didn't take that. At least I don't that think so. to the king. Not that
0: he that. He, yes, he is saying that to the king. He's Not saying that so much, is he? to
3: Melchizedek. Right. I think in Hebrews though, it's interesting when you say "hold it with a loose hand." Um, those metaphorical and similar language, like
0: right. as, right.
3: You know, those are things that we take uh, as a comparison or somebody that know, it's not gonna be a direct correlation. Right. So it
0: strengthens the argument of really hold it open. Hold it open. The whole point is this. You have Melchizedek blessing uh, Abraham. Melchizedek in some sense is greater than Abraham. That's what the, the the New Testament is saying. Melchizedek I think is a type of Christ. Melchizedek is he is someone that Abraham looks up to. He is someone that Abraham has paid tithes to, and it is simply uh, the matter that there is somebody better than Abraham coming. No. Yes, ma'am. So you yeah,
3: have the attributes of Christ. Not in fullness, but just what... What do you mean? Because if he's be Christ-like.
0: Christ-like, yes. Yeah.
3: So there has to be some kind of characteristic.
0: Of yes, and, that, and that, that's the parallel that the author of Hebrews is bringing out. Yeah. He's saying... Yeah, yeah, he's like this, he's like that, he's like this, he's like that, but I don't think he's saying this is Jesus. Yeah, I don't think he's saying this is that. Yes, ma'am? When I read through this before in and Carson, and
3: I were discussing it. I guess what made me believe or think, and of course, yeah, I'm like you're saying, we should hold it but what convinced me to think that he was an incarnate Christ was when it talks about there was no genealogy, no trace of him, and then the order of... Uh,
0: that's a strong indication yeah, that really who is this cat, you know? Yeah. yeah, but
1: that doesn't mean that from what I've talked, he has no genealogy. It means that he's not from the order of priests, but he does have a,
0: a He does have father. a genealogy, yeah. I, that's right. where the
3: genealogies come in is
0: when you're given an
3: annotations here.
0: Right. So, see, I, I see your point, mm-hmm. and I see their point. And that's, that's, what, that's what's driving me nuts about this yeah, part of Genesis. Absolutely. Because there's, there's a lot of, again, there's a, there's a mountain of arguments over here and a mountain of arguments over there. And I just think the, the best way to, to understand this is that he is a type of Christ. He is a pre, prefigurement uh, of who Jesus Christ is. I don't think that Melchizedek that talked to Abraham was Jesus Christ. I, don't, I just think that's kind of shaky to say. But I think that if you want to look at what the New Testament says about Melchizedek and how he, he compares to Jesus Christ, the New Testament is just saying there are things about Melchizedek there are things about Christ. There are things about Melchizedek that kind of, kind of point to Christ and line up with Christ, and that's great. But one even greater than Melchizedek is coming. Yes, sir. Hey,
3: I just wanted to celebrate. Um, if you go to the Gospel Coalition. Uh, there's a teaching on there by D. A. Carson mm. on Melchizedek. My my only question for this lesson today is I thought it was always I thought it was Melchizedek.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I, I, it was weird when I when I got the seminary too, I, I heard I heard like six different pronunciations. So if you go to the Gospel
3: Coalition and type in D.A. Carson Melchizedek, I think the, the the title of the message was Getting Excited About Melchizedek. Mm. It's like an hour and Ten minutes long or something like that. Okay. It is an amazing. I think it's a, probably the
0: best teaching I've heard of that yeah. yeah. Okay. I
3: will set up tonight. He is. He is the priest uh, uh, I think of Christophany,
0: uh, That it is Christ. Christ. Say that again. He, he doesn't believe. He does not believe. Okay. No, yeah, not, not. And then, no. Yes, and then yes. Yeah. Well,
1: this is this is separate from Alcuzic. This is just. Is it worth noting? Uh, the contrast between Abram's response to Sodom versus looking ahead to Lot's mm. response, where Abram, the king of Sodom, is going and trying to offer him, so he, he doesn't even want anything, any sort of thing from the wickedness held over his head. versus right. The other contrast.
0: Yeah. It it, it. it. Again, like we were talking about Lot. It, it. Is there this evolution of Lot? You know, probably, and and he kind of spirals down, but you know, Abram's not having any of it. And it's funny that Abraham even bargained for, you know, hey, can you find ten, five, you know, hey, what can you find here? Because uh, that's, that, I think, again, I think once that whole situation happened with Sarah, his wife, I think Abram had a change of heart. And he said, I'm following God wherever God goes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it.
2: I was just going to say, I think there's an agreement that a Christophany is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Yes. Well, if you're king of Salem, it's not merely an appearance. You're ruling over people. And so that's why I would see it as Christ being, because you're on earth ruling over people over a period of time. It's not just an appearance. So that's why I would say it to me it's not Christ. But, but, like you said, I agree he is definitely a representative of Christ.
0: And I hope we can, yes, ma'am. Are, me, are there examples in the Bible that we
3: can read um, that there was? Like
2: that, it's very clear that
0: it was Christ appearing, like He in the old that's than than, um, Yeah, like. I was going to go to that one. If you, everybody, turn to Genesis 18 real quick. big St- Sticking with the Genesis theme.
1: Yahweh from earth
0: called down fire from heaven. heaven. That's in 1924. Um, It says in, in, in chapter 18 it says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And actually what that means is that while Abraham is sitting in the tent that this that the Lord, it doesn't mean that he just kind of walked up on him. It means that he appeared and was kind of hovering there, not like way up, but he was just there. And, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. So he, he understands that the Lord is there, and the Lord is just kind of hovering there, and then he looks up, and there are three men. And one of those men is called the Lord. And then two more men go down to Sodom, and the Bible calls those two angels. Mm -hmm. So you have the Lord, you have two angels. And who was that? Again, because no man has seen God at any time. Mm -hmm. So if no man has seen God at any time and Abraham is looking at the Lord, who is he looking at? He's looking at Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the only person that it could be, because, again, I think that passage is talking about God the Father. So uh, that's one. Any time I think you see... Anytime that the Lord appears in the Old Testament, that he's there. I mean, who did uh, Jacob wrestle with? But he's
3: always referred to like an angel of the Lord yes. or but I like think a mere man. Like, you he, know,
0: the chest. But see, the thing is, uh, like when Jacob is wrestling with this angel, he's wrestling with something. He's not, you can't wrestle a spirit. He's wrestling a man. Yeah. So there's a man there. And that man later is identified as the Lord. Huh. So, um Any time that the Lord appears in the Old Testament, I think it's a Christophany. Um, And and Christophanies are, by definition, theophanies. So um, that's that's, that's how I think about them. Are Are there any questions? Again, when you guys read Genesis, I hope you understand. I think the point is that you don't take anything away from this class. The point is in Genesis, God did it. God does it. God will do it. God will be true to his purposes. And uh, I I hope that you guys have been blessed. I'm going to pray, and then we will dismiss. And uh, Pastor Emilio, what was your pronunciation again? Melchizedek. Melchizedek.
3: (laughs) You (laughs) wrote it on your own.
0: And I think maybe I've just got... Hey, you mind if I pray for you? Please, please. Pray
3: for us, and I'd like to pray for you as well. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for this study uh, today, Lord, in the book of Genesis. And Father, such a great and marvelous testimony of of what you have done through Jesus Christ, Lord, that you've brought us, one, according to the orders of Melchizedek, and that, Father, that he is our priest forever, and that he will never fail to reconcile us and bring us to God. And, uh, Lord, we just thank you for the wonder of your word. Thank you for showing us marvelous things out of your law today. And, to Father, we pray for Brother John. Thank you for his labor. Uh, Lord, we just really appreciate John, Lord. We know that working a full-time job and... Mm -hmm. Father, just uh, with a family at home, Lord, uh, just for him to make time to put these lessons together, Lord, it's just a labor of love for us. Mm -hmm. We pray for him, Lord, that you you will continue to pour into him and equip him for the calling that you have on his life, Lord. Uh, We ask you to bless him and bless Cassandra and the kids, Lord, and to bless our service in Jesus' name.
0: Thank you, Lord. God be
1: blessed.